From Animal Media, this is Tech on Politics, the podcast that lives at the intersection of technology and politics. I'm your host, Tom Saris. Today, we're here in Washington, D.C., and I want to welcome Steve Hilton to the show. Steve is a Brit, a political operative, an author, a political entrepreneur, and a professor at the highly respected Stanford D School. Steve recently wrote a book called More Human, Designing a World Where People Come First. He is the founder of a company called Crowdpack, a platform that claims to make it easier than ever to participate in politics, something I have to say I am all too familiar with. Crowdpack will help you launch your own campaign to run for public office. It helps you crowdfund from your community to fund your political ambitions. And you can use some of their custom tools to see where you sit on the ideological scale. Steve, we're living in an interesting time right now. Despite pollsters' best efforts, the Brits surprisingly voted in favor of departing the European Union. Populist movements and candidates are on the rise and winning. The Russians are said to be poking around the very fabric of our democracy. And the media is ablaze, chasing its own tail, trying to figure out how to handle the reality of our newest president, Donald J. Trump. I spent over a decade in your shoes, and let me tell you, I have enormous respect for the battle gear that you put on every day. I suppose you even have a handful of battle scars uh, worthy of some show and tell. Several years ago, I had an urge to write a book about my own experiences, and I was fortunate enough to have an amazing partner, Bettina, our executive producer back here, who convinced me that uh, that wasn't such a good idea, that maybe doing a podcast was a bit more robust of a communication platform, and uh, so far she's been right. So, without further ado, I want to welcome a fellow samurai and a political entrepreneur, Steve Hilton, to the show today. Uh, Steve, welcome to Tech on Politics. Well, thank you, Tom. It's great to be with you. A um, lot to get into there. Uh, very, uh, very, very interesting setup. To uh, I think will be a good conversation. So, before we get into it, uh, I really got to know. How the hell did you get yourself into this mess? <laughs> well, I think that the um, the starting point, our listeners can, can already tell, which is I'm originally from the UK. I've been living here now five years in America, but originally was in the UK and worked in politics. I worked for the Conservative Party uh, many years ago as a young intern and then a researcher where I met someone called David Cameron, who became a very close friend. I'm sorry, who's he? Uh, well, that's a good question nowadays. A lot of people are asking that. But um, the uh, the uh, uh, we did various things with our careers, and I started a business and, and corporate responsibility consulting and started a restaurant and did all sorts of different things. But then we came back together professionally when he, in the meantime, had been elected um, to parliament. And after various... Uh, things happened within the Conservative Party, decided that he wanted to stand for the leadership. And I reunited with him professionally and helped run his campaign. And then he was elected. And then we began a process in 2006 of modernizing the British Conservatives. You might think of them back then a little bit like people might see the Republicans here in America today. 
a party that had sort of really narrowed in its demographic appeal and seemed not to be really connecting with the issues that you, that particularly younger people and a more diverse voting group were focused on. So we we went through that process and then after the 2010 general election David Cameron became prime minister and I worked right with him by his side in 10 Downing Street as senior advisor and uh really my job there was to to manage the implementation of our domestic reform plan. So I focused on healthcare reform, welfare reform, school reform, open data, boosting the UK's a uh, 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 place for technology and startups, a whole range of things in the economic and social policy fronts. And then we moved here to America in 2012. I left that job and that was really for family reasons. My wife at the time had a big job at Google and because of that she was traveling a lot. So it was just really difficult for us with our young family. So we moved to California and as you mentioned, I had the great honor and and an opportunity to teach at Stanford. And really that's the moment when the present uh, entrepreneurial journey began at Stanford because what what I was able to do there was reflect on what had gone well uh, during the period that I was working in government what hadn't gone so well and why not and why I felt actually at the end of that time pretty frustrated at what I considered to be our inability to really deliver the big changes that we had promised and I think that the the kind of core aspect of that is the thing that unites all the points you made in your introduction about the rise of populism, about Brexit, about Trump's election victory here. All those things, I think, are tied together in one key idea, which is people power. And when we put forward our platform in the UK for office, that was the central idea that, that united much of our policy agenda, trying to decentralize power to put it directly in people's hands so they had more control over the things that matter to them, their school, they send their kids to, their healthcare, trying to decentralize power from, from the center to, to individuals and families and communities. Where did that come from? What, what, what's sort of the inspiration behind that desire to have the decentralization of power? Was that something that David Cameron was really behind? Is that something that motivated you? It was very much a, 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 a has always been a part of my my personal uh, philosophy. And what and drives that? It's an interesting question. I don't know. Um, I think partly, just think, just reflecting on uh, arguments I get into and the scrapes that I get into. It's a resistance to authority and being told what to do. That's just part of my character. So I think that's a big strong part of it. Uh, there's a philosophical element to it. I think. I think it's very much part of what I what I would see as the conservative political tradition, that notion of of uh, really rejecting the not because it's a it's a bad idea because but because it doesn't really work in practice the notion that you can build a utopia through central planning and and government direction and that actually in the end if you trust people to make decisions for themselves and work things out between them you're going to end up with better outcomes for society. We didn't really achieve even 5% of what we tried to do. Why was that? And the conclusion that I came to and then really saw it, its relevance even more in the US, my, my home now, was that there are some structural, institutional barriers to real reform and real change 
through the political system. Politicians, even those with the best of intentions, end up getting elected, accompanied by constraints that stop them delivering the kind of radical change that I think we need. And I thought that we were there to do, and I thought that we had actually promised to do when, when we ran for office. And primary amongst those constraints is the role of money in politics. Because what that means is that in order to get elected, you have to raise money, and, you, and the typical traditional ways of doing that tie you to a particular agenda. And I think that, and that's true whether it's what you're, you're talking about the left or the right. And this is, I think, one of the fundamental reasons why in the last, let's just say, 30 or so years, you've seen this tremendous concentration of power, economic power and political power, that has led to the rise of these massive global corporations that are detached from their communities and, and seem unable, despite, again, probably their best intentions, to put people first, to understand the human consequences of their business decisions. And in government and politics, you've seen the centralization of political power. So let's talk about that a little bit. And so I just wanted to sort of draw, draw the threads together. Sure. And that's what led me that's to what create CrowdPack. In, in its original version, in, in my conception, was a platform for crowdfunding politics so that we would a actually enable candidates to run for office independent of those institutional structures. Not it was one of the reasons that interests. I created Rally. Exactly. That's it why I was so excited to, exact to, to meet you and have this conversation because I think it's that same impulse. The big problem in the modern world is a concentration of power, political power and economic power. And the big task that faces all of us is trying to disrupt that and break up the power and put it back in people's hands. Do you think that that's still true today? It's even more true today. And I think that is the reason that well, so the, let's talk about that because the I, I, yeah, really is the reason what happened the Brexit with result and Trump here. I think that sure. and the populist um, and the support for populist candidates and movements right across Europe and, and elsewhere in the world. I think it's all part of the same thing. It definitely seems like there's a common thread and narrative happening. One of the things that I thought was most interesting was that Clinton out fundraised Trump nearly two to one. Is money still a problem? Well, remember that that is... I mean, that's all money that they spent on no, advertising no, I, I, and course, marketing, but it's GOTV a, efforts, you name it. She outspent him two to one, and fundamentally, it didn't matter. Yes, but that, for, there's there's two reasons why, well, probably more than two, at least two I can think of that would make that a special case. First of all, Donald Trump is a special case in the sense Why that is he a special case? Because of his pre-existing celebrity. So that's one reason I think is a special case. But the re but the but that, that's. You Do you know, think that's going to happen more? I think that's less interesting than the than the real point, which is that the and presidential that? election is one election of five hundred thousand elected positions just in America, and to be honest, most of the decisions that affect the lives of everyone listening to us are taken not at the presidential level but lower down the ballot, particularly by state legislatures. You know, I think that's one of the most interesting things. You know, when I started Rally, you know, we sort of sat back and said, okay, there's 80,000 municipalities in the United States. There's 3,000 counties, all of which have elected positions. And that was ultimately our goal. Like, how do we democratize technology? Because that was, at the end of the day, 
when I got started in politics, that was the one of the things that the, the wealthier candidates had. They had the money to spend on technology because it was a lot more expensive. But then over time, as a result of just society changing and technology advancing, we were able to sit back and say, well, no, we can provide this technology to everybody. Yes. We must have powered 70,000 political campaigns. But did it have the impact? I'm not so sure yet. Well, I, I think that we've, we're all, you know, tr- trying to make our contribution to that movement. Of course. And that's what Crowdpack is all so, about. So we're just getting about, going. But I think that that, that that is a really clear point of connection where w- w- one of the things that we're trying to build at Crowdpack is, is a platform for anybody to either to run for office themselves at the local level, at the state level or wherever, or to nominate someone else who they think might might have a contribution to make. You, you can go to CrowdPack right now and literally create a funding a fundraising page where you can start collecting pledges from your friends and your network and the people that are close to you. Their card will only be charged if you actually enter a race. It's a great way for people to take that first step, to test the waters, to see whether they Do you think might that's what's holding back for people from running? It's uh, it's one of the factors. Um, if you what else to, is holding them back? Well, let's just look at that one. Particularly for women, if you talk to organizations that work with, uh, and there's, there's plenty of really good ones who are focused on correcting the terrible underrepresentation of women in elected office in America, much worse than, than, than a lot of other countries. And they say that literally the number one barrier for women is fundraising. Not doing it, but the fear of doing it, the prospect of doing it, asking for money. And that, therefore, I think is, 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 is something that we should really pay attention to. I'm not saying that what we've built is going to solve that problem on its own. But, but that's the reason we designed it that way, to take some of the stress and anxiety out of it and, and allow you to get going and to start collecting pledges before you even run. Just that simple step gives people the confidence to move forward. It's a very emotional um, way of thinking about it. And I think that's, that's, the, that's a part of it that, that, that too many people miss, which is that just that sense of, yeah, have I got the, have I got the support? I don't feel right. It's, it's an emotional thing just as much as anything else. And so that's one of the reasons we've focused on that very early stage of, of candidates getting going before they've even um, filed the papers to officially enter a race. Do you think that's only uh, characteristic for women? I mean, I, no, I mean, no, I'm my not saying it's only much everybody's afraid of fundraising. Yeah, but it's particularly <laughs> the case for women. I mean, I, and again, it's, this is not m- me yeah. saying this. This is this is reporting yeah. um, the, um, the 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 point of view of organisations who specifically focus on getting more women to run for office. It's not only women, but a lot of the reason that we we, we have the same kind of people running for office, and and therefore the same kind of identikit promises and nothing really changes and that's why there's this sort of great anger and resentment about things that has led to these explosions of populist feeling at the national level with Brexit and Trump is that is that people do believe that it's all a game for the insiders and 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 that's kind of true that if well, you it's kn- not kind of true it, it is it true. is true exactly so, sorry. <laughs> it, it is a game it is insiders. a game and the and, and and if you know how to do it you know who to you know and and that's all about then getting in with the that's going back to my earlier point that the party structures and that to get on you need to get in with the people who who call the shots in the party system and so that's, that's what i'm case, really keen to break it if that's the case how's it actually going on crowdpack talk to me about how many people are using it? What kind of volume are you guys doing? 
Give me some metrics. So we've got, um, I'm just trying to think of the, the the latest numbers. We have about sort of 8 million users, something like that, people who are engaging with us and and have either come in through uh, some of our voter information products or, or for example, we, we give people objective information about candidates on their ballot using publicly available data to simplify their positions and so on. We, we had a lot of success with that. And we've launched in the UK and France more recently in the UK last year for the Brexit vote. Were you involved with that whole Brexit process? Oh, yeah, or? very much. Oh, yeah, I, 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 although I'm based here now in, in America, I did choose to go back to the UK just for just for the campaign, just for a few weeks, back and forth. And you were an active proponent of Brexit. Yeah? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I was one of the leaders of the campaign. And, and what what was it about it that got you excited about that? Well, I'd always believed in leaving the EU. But for the same reasons we discussed earlier, I believe in people power and democracy. And in, in a way and that the, wasn't happening as a part of the EU. Well, the EU is the direct opposite of that. It is literally the direct opposite in the sense that it takes power away from people and centralizes it in an unelected bureaucracy, which is not subject to any kind of democratic accountability. Now, that's my particular way of putting it. There'll be others on the other side who, who would challenge that. But a member state of the European Union has much less freedom of political action and policy freedom than a state within the US, for example. Now, a lot of people here in America would, and, and I'd be one of them, complain about the centralization of power in the federal government and so on. But at least here in America, the federal government is elected. At least the president is elected. Congress is elected. The EU leadership is not elected. It's appointed. The policy-making power within the EU resides with the European Commission. That is an appointed group. There's no election there. Yes, there's a European Parliament that's directly elected. And yes, it's true that, that ministers from elected governments go to Brussels to make negotiations about these things. But the driver of policy and regulation is an unelected body. You're doing things that, that no one voted for as a government. That's just totally wrong. It's anti-democratic. I think the mistake that a lot of people make here in America, and why should they follow it closely? There's no reason to. Is to think of the EU as basically some kind of version of NAFTA. That is this kind of free trade area. Why wouldn't you want to be in that? That's how it started. But actually, if you go back to the founding documents of the EU, it, the phrase that they use is, is about an ever closer union. We, we've got, come together to build an ever closer union. And they literally meant that. It contravenes every principle of, of people power. So to me, there's absolutely no question that the UK should leave. It's something I argued for whilst in government. I tried to persuade David Cameron and, and our friends and colleagues in government that, that we should, that Britain should leave the EU, not, not, not even through a referendum, that it should be our official policy to leave the EU. So when eventually he took the decision to have a referendum, for me, there was absolutely no question that I would go and campaign for that um, outcome, even though that put me on the other side of the argument from my long-standing friend and, and former colleague, um, and with you know pretty negative consequences for his career. But to me, it was a big question of principle. And they were the ones that said in that campaign, this is bigger than any general election. This is a decision for you know uh, generations to come. And so we've got to put aside you know immediate short-term party considerations and do what we think is right. Well, for me, democracy is right. How much of, I don't know if you want to call it the uprising, that's happening 
How much do you think that is rooted in technology? Advancements in technology, people are worried or afraid about the future, their jobs. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's going to get better or worse? I don't think it's that much connected with technology, frankly. I think that um, it's really something that's been building for the last 30 or so years, as you've seen this, this agenda implemented by governments, regardless of who wins elections. The same agenda has been pursued, which is an agenda that is uncritical of globalization, automation. There is, I think, an aspect of technology there, uncritical of immigration, and that prioritizes efficiency above everything else regardless of the human consequences. Do you think they're actually prioritizing efficiency? <laughs> yeah, I do. I think that, you know, so for example, if, you, if, you, if, you're, if you're running a big company, you know, that is your number, you're, you're trying to find ways to cut costs, make things more efficient sure. and so on. And that's what ends up with the sense that people have who either work with or encounter so many of the big corporations that dominate our daily lives and our, eco our economy, that they're, they're really an afterthought. I, and, and, it's, and it's had a massive impact on people's sense of control over the things that matter to them. But also on their, there's also been a collapse of economic opportunity that's accompanied this. And, and this gets you into the inequality argument. And this is where the automation maybe comes it's not in? Just, no, I don't no. think it's, it's so much the automation. I think that's, that's a bit of a red herring. I really mm. do. It's actually the choices that have been made about how you distribute the, the, the earnings that business generates, right? And, it's, and even including last year's increase, the median household income in America last year was lower than in 1999. That's the median. That means the half of households are earning less. It means that people have had, this is half the country, has, their experience has been eight years of Bush, eight years of Obama, and they're worse off at the end of it. And is that's these are not policy just, problems, or well, these? It's, no, it's the it's the it's the structural. This is why I come back to the structural problems. It, 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 because the policies that have been pursued, the agenda. It's more than policies. It's the agenda. What agenda? The agenda of unconstrained commitment to the things that we, sp we I mentioned earlier: globalization, automation, immigration, prioritization of efficiency. That kind of technocratic agenda that that drives the modern world has really been barely touched as a result of democratic elections over the last few decades. And that's why people not only feel that as a negative econ a loss of economic opportunity, they experience it as a loss of power as well, because they know perfectly well that whoever they vote for, the same people are going to be in charge. The bankers and the bureaucrats and the accountants and, and, the, and, and the elite that they know very well. And that explains Trump more than anything else, I think, because they finally see someone who just might bring about some kind of change. He's so different. He looks so different. He speaks so differently. He doesn't conform to any of those norms. And even if they didn't agree with him or even understand particularly the, the, the consequence of what he might do, I think let's give it a shot because at last we might get some change. I think it's exactly the same with Brexit, where people I don't think really you know, and didn't really have the, the ability because it's an unpredictable thing to sort of get into the kind of nitty gritty of whether the, whether leaving the single market would make us better or worse off. It was just, you know what? We've had it. We want change. Nothing changes. We've had election after election after election. Nothing ever changes. Let's try this. So you have some interest. You're a for-profit company. Yeah. Right. And you have VCs and you're, why do you think venture capitalists are interested in what you're doing? Well, I, you know, our, our, our lead investor, for example, in our Series A 
fundraising round is Reid Hoffman, uh, who is you know well known um, as someone who really is passionate about social change and political change, and values just as much our social mission as our prospects of making a lot of money. I mean, I, I've always believed in the profit motive as a driver of of quality and an, and a way to achieve scale. You know, we have a big ambitions for the change we want to enable, and so to me, that was the the route to go down in terms of building high quality products that that could enable us to build up quickly and have a bigger impact. But the mission is really important. I mean, everyone that works at CrowdPack is completely you know, passionate about democratizing democracy, about about this mission of giving politics back to people. We have Democrats and Republicans and independents and all sorts working in our teams. And one of the things I'm proudest of is, is that fact, actually, at this time of real, you know, anger and divisiveness and polarization, very heated d- debates and so on going on, particularly here in America right now. We're a, a, t- a team that crosses ideological lines and, and work together whatever we may think individually, we all agree that politics needs to be democratized, that we need to open it up so it's not just the insiders that have all the power. So if you could wave a magic wand and have the perfect scenario set before you that would, let's call it, destroy crowd pack and its entire need to even exist, what would it be? I, I, well, that's an issue. I, I, I can see why you, you put the question that way, but I don't. I don't actually. Th- I, I don't think because you guys are a mission. You guys have a mission. Yeah, as the a mission is to is to enable people to to give people power. And what does that world look like to you? You mentioned right in the beginning in the introduction that I had the chance to teach at the D School at Stanford, the, the Institute of Design. Um, now, in order to do that, I had to learn the what is taught there which is basically a methodology of innovation and creativity, which is known by various names, either human-centered design or design thinking, whatever. But it's all the same thing, which is like trying to design products and services that genuinely take account of what people need. And that sounds so simple and basic. It's so different from how policy is developed and implemented in government. If I say this to my students, and and I I believe it now, you know, if I'd have gone through that process, if I'd have learned about and then learned how to teach design thinking before I worked in government, I would have been a hundred times more effective. And I think that what it really taught me is that that process of of collaborating and trying things out and seeing the response and, and and understanding people deep on a deep level on a human and emotional level before you actually um, put money behind something or, or develop a policy whatever it may be would just make such a difference and I think that if you had people who are not constrained by the party system in public office you're more likely to get that that kind of approach to problem solving and a less ideological less fixed sort of approach to things and I think you get massively better outcomes. Yeah, I appreciate your thoughts on just, you know, how we might move more towards uh, voter-centered design in government. It's a great, great way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Steve, thank you so much for coming on today's no, it's show. It's a pleasure. Today. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed uh, it. Thanks, Steve. Great to be with you. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Tech on Politics. We really hope you enjoyed this season. 
It was something that started out as just an audio experiment we launched just before the presidential election. A time when we faced a political scene dominated by the feud between two terrible candidates and their parties. At that point, the conversation was about emails and not big ideas and technologies and how they're going to impact our society. But you know what? Tech is going to get more and more relevant in the political battles and social opportunities we will have over the next decade. We really need to prepare ourselves for it, and that is kind of what this show is about. We covered a lot of big ideas this season, how governance can be improved by the Lean Startup Method with Eric Ries, how the blockchain will revolutionize what we know as the internet with Don Tapscott, and the idea of a constitutional convention with Michael Furtick. These big ideas and solutions could not be more important or timely. Just like any good entrepreneur, we took a lot of our learnings from season one and used them to better execute season two. For the next season, we decided to tackle some of the scarier technologies we've heard pundits say are coming at us. We will talk about driverless cars with the founder of Zipcar, focus on artificial intelligence with the co-founder of Wired Magazine, talk cybersecurity with one of the most prominent military generals of the last several decades, and the future of automation and manufacturing with the founder of Plethora. We wanted to know what we should be doing about these kinds of transformative technologies. And you're going to love some of the answers we got. Bettina and I have had a really good time learning how to make these podcasts. We're also very appreciative of all the support and excitement we've received so far. A big thank you to all of our listeners out there. If you liked what you heard this season, rate the show, leave a review, and tell a friend. That's all we really ask. This is both a show and a community. It's a platform for bigger conversations, and we could not be more excited to bring you season two. In the meantime, you can check out our past episodes of Tech on Politics and some of our new projects at animalventures.co. Again, that's animalventures.co. Our team this season included Bettina Warburg as executive producer, Gina Delvac as producer and editor, and Stephen Colon as audio engineer. Thanks to our guests, Eric Reese, Michael Furtick, Yutta Steiner, Don Tapscott, Andrew Bleeker, Matt Mahan, Howard Reingold, Pia Mancini, and Steve Hilton. I'm your host, Tom Saris, and we'll talk to you soon. Coming up on season two... Robin Chase tells us how driverless cars are going to take over our cities. It's going to open up access to jobs that right now for poor people who don't live on great transit systems and don't have the money for cars can actually get to jobs. And Kevin Kelly gets serious about AIs. We have a misconception about our own intelligence that flows over into our misconceptions about artificial intelligence. And we tend to think of intelligence as a single dimension, like IQ. That's completely incorrect. Our own intelligences are kind of a a sweet spectrum, a symphony of many different types of thinking. We'll be back soon with the full season two of Tech on Politics.